Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 1 of To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Corey Samuel. Part One, The Window, Chapter One. Yes, of course, if it's fine tomorrow, said Mrs. Ramsay. But you'll have to be up with the lark, she added. To her son, these words conveyed an extraordinary joy, as if it were settled, the expedition were bound to take place, and the wonder to which he had looked forward, for years and years it seemed, was, after a night's darkness and a day's sail, within touch. Since he belonged, even at the age of six, to that great clan which cannot keep this feeling separate from that, but must let future prospects, with their joys and sorrows, cloud what is actually at hand, since to such people even in earliest childhood any turn in the wheel of sensation has the power to crystallise and transfix the moment upon which its gloom or radiance rests. James Ramsay, sitting on the floor cutting out pictures from the illustrated catalogue of the Army and Navy stores, endowed the picture of a refrigerator, as his mother spoke, with heavenly bliss. It was fringed with joy. The wheelbarrow, the lawn-mower, the sound of poplar trees, leaves whitening before rain, rooks cawing, brooms knocking, dresses rustling. All these were so coloured and distinguished in his mind that he had already his private code, his secret language, though he appeared the image of stark and uncompromising severity, with his high forehead and his fierce blue eyes, impeccably candid and pure, frowning slightly at the sight of human frailty, said that his mother, watching him guide his scissors neatly round the refrigerator, imagined him all red and ermine on the bench, or directing a stern and momentous enterprise in some crisis of public affairs. "'But,' said his father, stopping in front of the drawing-room window, "'it won't be fine.' Had there been an axe handy, a poker, or any weapon that would have gashed a hole in his father's breast and killed him there and then, James would have seized it. Such were the extremes of emotion that Mr. Ramsay excited in his children's breasts by his mere presence, standing, as now, lean as a knife, narrow as the blade of one, grinning sarcastically, not only with the pleasure of disillusioning his son and casting ridicule upon his wife, who was ten thousand times better in every way than he was, James thought, but also with some secret conceit at his own accuracy of judgment. What he said was true. It was always true. He was incapable of untruth, never tampered with a fact, never altered a disagreeable word to suit the pleasure or convenience of any mortal being, least of all his own children, who, 
sprung from his loins, should be aware from childhood that life is difficult, facts uncompromising, and the passage to that fabled land where our brightest hopes are extinguished, our frail barks founder in darkness. Here Mr. Ramsay would straighten his back and narrow his little blue eyes upon the horizon. One that needs, above all, courage, truth, and the power to endure. "'But it may be fine. I expect it will be fine,' said Mrs. Ramsay, making some little twist of the reddish-brown stocking she was knitting impatiently. If she finished it to-night, if they did go to the lighthouse after all, it was to be given to the lighthouse-keeper for his little boy, who was threatened with a tuberculous hip. Together with a pile of old magazines and some tobacco, indeed whatever she could find lying about, not really wanted but only littering the room, to give those poor fellows, who must be bored to death sitting all day with nothing to do but polish the lamp and trim the wick and rake about on their scrap of garden, something to amuse them. For how would you like to be shut up for a whole month at a time, and possibly more in stormy weather, upon a rock the size of a tennis-lawn?" she would ask, and to have no letters or newspapers, and to see nobody. If you were married, not to see your wife, not to know how your children were. If they were ill, if they had fallen down and broken their legs or arms. To see the same dreary waves breaking week after week, and then a dreadful storm coming, and the windows covered with spray, and birds dashed against the lamp, and the whole place rocking, and not being able to put your nose out of doors for fear of being swept into the sea. How would you like that?" she asked, addressing herself particularly to her daughters. So, she added, rather differently, one must take them whatever comforts one can. "'It's due west,' said the atheist Tansley holding his bony fingers spread so that the wind blew through them, for he was sharing Mr. Ramsay's evening walk up and down, up and down the terrace. That is to say, the wind blew from the worst possible direction for landing at the lighthouse. Yes, he did say disagreeable things, Mrs. Ramsay admitted. It was odious of him to rub this in, and make James still more disappointed. But, at the same time, she would not let them laugh at him. The atheist, they called him, the little atheist. Rose mocked him, Prue mocked him, Andrew, Jasper, Roger mocked him, even old Badger without a tooth in his head had bit him, for being, as Nancy put it, the hundred and tenth young man to chase them all the way up to the Hebrides, when it was ever so much nicer to be alone. Nonsense! said Mrs. Ramsay, with great severity. Apart from the habit of exaggeration which they had from her, and from the implication, which was true, that she asked too many people to stay, and had to lodge some in the town, she could not bear incivility to her guests, to young men in particular, who were poor as church mice, exceptionally able, her husband said, his great admirers, and come there for a holiday. Indeed, she had the whole of the other sex under her protection, for reasons she could not explain, for their chivalry and valour, for the fact that they negotiated treaties, ruled India, controlled finance. Finally, for an attitude towards herself which no woman could fail to feel or to find agreeable, something trustful, childlike, reverential, 
which an old woman could take from a young man without loss of dignity, and woe betide the girl—pray heaven it was none of her daughters—who did not feel the worth of it, and all that it implied, to the marrow of her bones. She turned with severity upon Nancy. He had not chased them, she said. He had been asked. They must find a way out of it all. There might be some simpler way, some less laborious way, she sighed. When she looked in the glass and saw her hair grey, her cheeks sunk, at fifty, she thought, possibly she might have managed things better. Her husband, money, his books. But, for her own part, she would never for a single second regret her decision, evade difficulties, or slur over duties. She was now formidable to behold, and it was only in silence, looking up from their plates, after she had spoken so severely about Charles Tansley, that her daughters—Prue, Nancy, Rose—could sport with infidel ideas which they had brewed for themselves, of a life different from hers. In Paris, perhaps, a wilder life, not always taking care of some man or other, for there was in all their minds a mute questioning of deference and chivalry, of the Bank of England and the Indian Empire, of ringed fingers and lace, though to them all there was something in this of the essence of beauty, which called out the manliness in their girlish hearts, and made them, as they sat at table beneath their mother's eyes, honour her strange severity, her extreme courtesy, like a queen's raising from the mud to wash a beggar's dirty foot when she admonished them so very severely about that wretched atheist who had chased them, or, speaking accurately, been invited to stay with them, in the Isle of Skye. "'There'll be no landing at the lighthouse to-morrow,' said Charles Tansley, clapping his hands together as he stood at the window with her husband. Surely he had said enough. She wished they would both leave her and James alone and go on talking. She looked at him. He was such a miserable specimen, the children said, all humps and hollows. He couldn't play cricket. He poked. He shuffled. He was a sarcastic brute, Andrew said. They knew what he liked best, to be forever walking up and down, up and down with Mr. Ramsay, and saying who had won this, who had won that, who was a first-rate man at Latin verses, who was brilliant but I think fundamentally unsound who was undoubtedly the ablest fellow in Balliol, who had buried his light temporarily at Bristol or Bedford, but was bound to be heard of later when his prolegomena, of which Mr. Tansley had the first pages in proof with him if Mr. Ramsay would like to see them, to some branch of mathematics or philosophy, saw the light of day. That was what they talked about. She could not help laughing herself sometimes. She said, the other day, something about waves mountains high. Yes, said Charles Tansley, it was a little rough. Aren't you drenched to the skin? she had said. Damp, not wet through, said Mr. Tansley, pinching his sleeve, feeling his socks. But it was not that they minded, the children said. It was not his face. It was not his manners. It was him, his point of view. When they talked about something interesting—people, music, history, anything—even said it was a fine evening, so why not sit out of doors? Then what they complained of about Charles Tansley 
was that until he had turned the whole thing round, and made it somehow reflect himself and disparage them, he was not satisfied. And he would go to picture-galleries, they said, and he would ask one, did one like his tie? God knows, said Rose, one did not. Disappearing as stealthily as stags from the dinner-table directly the meal was over, the eight sons and daughters of Mr. and Mrs. Ramsay sought their bedrooms, their fastness in a house where there was no other privacy to debate anything, everything. Tansley's tie, the passing of the reform bill, sea-birds and butterflies, people, while the sun poured into those attics, which a plank alone separated from each other, so that every footstep could be plainly heard, and the Swiss girl sobbing for her father who was dying of cancer in the valley of the Grisons, and lit up bats, flannels, straw hats, ink-pots, paint-pots, beetles, and the skulls of small birds, while it drew from the long frilled strips of seaweed pinned to the wall a smell of salt and weeds, which was in the towels, too, gritty with sand from bathing. Strife, divisions, difference of opinion, prejudices twisted into the very fibre of being. Oh, that they should begin so early, Mrs. Ramsay deplored. They were so critical, her children. They talked such nonsense. She went from the dining-room, holding James by the hand, since he would not go with the others. It seemed to her such nonsense, inventing differences, when people, heaven knows, were different enough without that. The real differences, she thought, standing by the drawing-room window, are enough, quite enough. She had in mind at the moment, rich and poor, high and low, the great in birth receiving from her, half-grudging, some respect, for had she not in her veins the blood of that very noble, if slightly mythical, Italian house, whose daughters, scattered about English drawing-rooms in the nineteenth century, had lisped so charmingly, had stormed so wildly, and all her wit and her bearing and her temper came from them, and not from the sluggish English or the cold Scotch. But more profoundly she ruminated the other problem, of rich and poor, and the things she saw with her own eyes, weekly, daily, here or in London, when she visited this widow or that struggling wife in person with a bag on her arm, and a notebook and pencil, with which she wrote down in columns carefully ruled for the purpose, wages and spendings, employment and unemployment, in the hope that thus she would cease to be a private woman, whose charity was half a sop to her own indignation, half a relief to her own curiosity, and become what with her untrained mind she greatly admired, an investigator, elucidating the social problem. Insoluble problems they were, it seemed to her, standing there, holding James by the hand. He had followed her into the drawing-room, that young man they laughed at. He was standing by the table, fidgeting with something, awkwardly, feeling himself out of things, as she knew without turning round. They had all gone, the children, Minter Doyle and Paul Rayleigh, Augustus Carmichael, her husband, they had all gone. So she turned with a sigh, and said, "'Would it bore you to come with me, Mr. Tansley?' She had a dull errand in the town, she had a letter or two to write, she would be ten minutes, perhaps, she would put on her hat. And, 
with her basket and her parasol, there she was again, ten minutes later, giving out a sense of being ready, of being equipped for a jaunt, which, however, she must interrupt for a moment, as they passed the tennis-lawn, to ask Mr. Carmichael, who was basking with his yellow cat's eyes ajar, so that like a cat's they seemed to reflect the branches moving or the clouds passing, but to give no inkling of any inner thoughts or emotion whatsoever, if he wanted anything. For they were making the great expedition, she said, laughing. They were going to the town. Stamps, writing-paper, tobacco, she suggested, stopping by his side. But no, he wanted nothing. His hands clasped themselves over his capacious paunch. His eyes blinked, as if he would have liked to reply kindly to these blandishments. She was seductive, but a little nervous. But could not, sunk as he was in a grey-green somnolence which embraced them all, without need of words, in a vast and benevolent lethargy of well-wishing. All the house, all the world, all the people in it for he had slipped into his glass at lunch a few drops of something, which accounted, the children thought, for the vivid streak of canary-yellow in moustache and beard that were otherwise milk-white. "'No, nothing,' he murmured. "'He should have been a great philosopher,' said Mrs. Ramsay, as they went down the road to the fishing-village, but he had made an unfortunate marriage. Holding her black parasol very erect, and moving with an indescribable air of expectation, as if she were going to meet someone round the corner, she told the story—an affair at Oxford with some girl, an early marriage, poverty, going to India, translating a little poetry, very beautifully, I believe, being willing to teach the boys Persian or Hindustani, but what really was the use of that, and then lying, as they saw him, on the lawn. It flattered him, snubbed as he had been. It soothed him that Mrs. Ramsay should tell him this. Charles Tansley revived. Insinuating, too, as she did, the greatness of man's intellect, even in its decay, the subjection of all wives, not that she blamed the girl, and the marriage had been happy enough, she believed, to the husband's labours. She made him feel better pleased with himself than he had done yet, and he would have liked had they taken a cab, for example, to have paid the fare. As for her little bag, might he not carry that? No, no, she said, she always carried that herself. She did, too. Yes, he felt that in her. He felt many things, something in particular that excited him and disturbed him for reasons which he could not give. He would like her to see him, gowned and hooded, walking in a procession, a fellowship, a professorship, he felt capable of anything, and saw himself. But what was she looking at? At a man pasting a bill. The vast flapping sheet flattened itself out, and each shove of the brush revealed fresh legs, hoops, horses, glistening reds and blues, beautifully smooth, until half the wall was covered with the advertisement of a circus, a hundred horsemen, twenty performing seals, lions, tigers. Craning forwards, for she was short-sighted, she read it out. "'We'll visit this town,' she read. It was terribly dangerous work for a one-armed man, she exclaimed, to stand on top of a ladder like that, 
whose left arm had been cut off in a reaping-machine two years ago. "'Let us all go!' she cried, moving on, as if all those riders and horses had filled her with childlike exultation, and made her forget her pity. "'Let's go,' he said, repeating her words, clicking them out, however, with a self-consciousness that made her wince. "'Let us all go to the circus.' No, he could not say it right. He could not feel it right. But why not, she wondered. What was wrong with him, then? She liked him warmly at the moment. Had they not been taken, she asked, to circuses when they were children? Never, he answered, as if she asked the very thing he wanted, had been longing all these days to say how they did not go to circuses. It was a large family nine brothers and sisters, and his father was a working man. "'My father is a chemist, Mrs. Ramsay. He keeps a shop.' He himself had paid his own way since he was thirteen. Often he went without a greatcoat in winter. He could never—return hospitality—those were his parched, stiff words—at college. He had to make things last twice the time other people did. He smoked the cheapest tobacco, shag, the same the old men did in the Keys. He worked hard—seven hours a day. His subject was now the influence of something upon somebody. They were walking on, and Mrs. Ramsay did not quite catch the meaning—only the words here and there—dissertation, fellowship, readership, lectureship. She could not follow the ugly academic jargon that rattled itself off so glibly but said to herself that she saw now why going to the circus had knocked him off his perch, poor little man, and why he came out, instantly, with all that about his father and mother and brothers and sisters, and she would see to it that they didn't laugh at him any more, she would tell Prue about it. What he would have liked, she supposed, would have been to say how he had gone not to the circus, but to Ibsen with the Ramses. He was an awful prig. Oh, yes, an insufferable bore! For, though they had reached the town now, and were in the main street, with carts grinding past on the cobbles, still he went on talking, about settlements, and teaching, and working men, and helping our own class, and lectures, till she gathered that he had got back entire self-confidence, had recovered from the circus, and was about—and now again she liked him warmly—to tell her— but here, the houses falling away on both sides, they came out on the quay, and the whole bay spread before them, and Mrs. Ramsay could not help exclaiming, "'Oh, how beautiful!' For the great plateful of blue water was before her, the hoary lighthouse, distant, austere in the midst, and on the right, as far as the eye could see, fading and falling in low, soft bleats the green sand-dunes with the wild flowing grasses on them, which always seemed to be running away into some moon-country, uninhabited of men. That was the view, she said, stopping, growing greyer-eyed, that her husband loved. She paused a moment. But now, she said, artists had come here. There, indeed, only a few paces off, stood one of them, in Panama hat and yellow boots, seriously, softly, absorbedly, for all that he was watched by ten little boys, 
with an air of profound contentment on his round red face, gazing, and then, when he had gazed, dipping, imbuing the tip of his brush in some soft mound of green or pink. Since Mr. Pouncefort had been there three years before, all the pictures were like that, she said, green and grey, with lemon-coloured sailing-boats and pink women on the beach. But her grandmother's friends, she said, glancing discreetly as they passed, took the greatest pains. First they mixed their own colours, and then they ground them, and then they put damp cloths to keep them moist. So Mr. Tansley supposed she meant him to see that that man's picture was skimpy. Was that what one said? The colours weren't solid. Was that what one said? Under the influence of that extraordinary emotion which had been growing all the walk, had begun in the garden when he had wanted to take her bag, had increased in the town when he had wanted to tell her everything about himself, he was coming to see himself, and everything he had ever known gone crooked a little. It was awfully strange. There he stood in the parlour of the pokey little house where she had taken him, waiting for her, while she went upstairs a moment to see a woman. He heard her quick step above, heard her voice cheerful, then low, looked at the mats, tea-caddies, glass-shades, waited quite impatiently, looked forward eagerly to the walk home, determined to carry her bag, then heard her come out, shut a door, say they must keep the windows open and the doors shut, ask at the house for anything they wanted, she must be talking to a child, when suddenly in she came, stood for a moment silent, as if she had been pretending up there, and for a moment let herself be now, stood quite motionless for a moment against a picture of Queen Victoria wearing the blue ribbon of the garter. When all at once he realised that it was this, it was this! She was the most beautiful person he had ever seen. With stars in her eyes and veils in her hair, with cyclamen and wild violets. What nonsense was he thinking? She was fifty at least, she had eight children. Stepping through fields of flowers, and taking to her breast buds that had broken and lambs that had fallen, with the stars in her eyes and the wind in her hair, he had hold of her bag. "'Good-bye, Elsie,' she said, and they walked up the street, she holding her parasol erect and walking as if she expected to meet someone round the corner, while for the first time in his life Charles Tansley felt an extraordinary pride. A man digging in a drain stopped digging and looked at her, let his arm fall down and looked at her. For the first time in his life Charles Tansley felt an extraordinary pride, felt the wind and the cyclamen and the violets, for he was walking with a beautiful woman. He had hold of her bag. CHAPTER Two. "'No going to the lighthouse, James,' he said, as trying in deference to Mrs. Ramsay to soften his voice into some semblance of geniality at least. "'Odious little man,' thought Mrs. Ramsay. "'Why go on saying that?' CHAPTER Three. "'Perhaps you will wake up and find the sun shining and the birds singing,' she said compassionately smoothing the little boy's hair, for her husband, with his caustic saying that it would not be fine, 
had dashed his spirits, she could see. This going to the lighthouse was a passion of his, she saw, and then, as if her husband had not said enough, with his caustic saying that it would not be fine to-morrow, this odious little man went and rubbed it in all over again. "'Perhaps it will be fine to-morrow,' she said, smoothing his hair. All she could do now was to admire the refrigerator, and turn the pages of the store's list, in the hope that she might come upon something like a rake or a mowing-machine, which, with its prongs and its handles, would need the greatest skill and care in cutting out. All these young men parodied her husband, she reflected. He said it would rain. They said it would be a positive tornado. But here, as she turned the page, suddenly her search for the picture of a rake or a mowing-machine was interrupted. The gruff murmur, irregularly broken by the taking out of pipes and the putting in of pipes which had kept on assuring her, though she could not hear what was said, as she sat in the window which opened on the terrace, that the men were happily talking. This sound, which had lasted now half an hour, and had taken its place soothingly in the scale of sounds pressing on top of her, such as the tap of balls upon bats, the sharp sudden bark now and then, "'How's that? How's that?' of the children playing cricket, had ceased. So that the monotonous fall of the waves on the beach, which, for the most part, beat a measured and soothing tattoo to her thoughts, and seemed consolingly to repeat over and over again, as she sat with the children, the words of some old cradle-song, murmured by nature, "'I am guarding you, I am your support.' But at other times, suddenly and unexpectedly, especially when her mind raised itself slightly from the task actually in hand, had no such kindly meaning, but, like a ghostly roll of drums, remorselessly beat the measure of life, made one think of the destruction of the island and its engulfment in the sea, and warned her, whose day had slipped past in one quick doing after another, that it was all ephemeral as a rainbow. This sound, which had been obscured and concealed under the other sounds, suddenly thundered hollow in her ears, and made her look up with an impulse of terror. They had ceased to talk, that was the explanation. Falling in one second from the tension which had gripped her, to the other extreme, which, as if to recoup her for her unnecessary expensive emotion, was cool, amused, and even faintly malicious, she concluded that poor Charles Tansley had been shed. That was of little account to her. If her husband required sacrifices, and indeed he did, she cheerfully offered up to him Charles Tansley, who had snubbed her little boy. One moment more, with her head raised, she listened, as if she waited for some habitual sound, some regular mechanical sound. And then, hearing something rhythmical, half said, half chanted, beginning in the garden, as her husband beat up and down the terrace, something between a croak and a song. She was soothed once more, assured again that all was well, and, looking down at the book on her knee, found the picture of a pocket-knife with six blades, which could only be cut out if James was very careful. Suddenly a loud cry as of a sleep-walker, half-roused, something about, stormed at with shot and shell, sung out with the utmost intensity in her ear, 
made her turn apprehensively to see if any one had heard him. Only Lily Briscoe, she was glad to find, and that did not matter. But the sight of the girl standing on the edge of the lawn painting reminded her. She was supposed to be keeping her head as much in the same position as possible for Lily's picture. Lily's picture. Mrs. Ramsay smiled. With her little Chinese eyes and her puckered-up face, she would never marry. One could not take her painting very seriously. She was an independent little creature, and Mrs. Ramsay liked her for it. So, remembering her promise, she bent her head. End of section 1「To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Indeed, he almost knocked her easel over, coming down upon her with his hands waving, shouting out, "'Boldly we rode, and well!' But mercifully he turned sharp and rode off, to die gloriously, she supposed, upon the heights of Balaclava. Never was anybody at once so ridiculous and so alarming. But, so long as he kept like that, waving, shouting, she was safe, he would not stand still and look at her picture. And that was what Lily Briscoe could not have endured. Even while she looked at the mass, at the line, at the colour, at Mrs. Ramsay sitting in the window with James, she kept a feeler on her surroundings lest someone should creep up, and suddenly she should find her picture looked at. But now, with all her senses quickened as they were, looking, straining, till the colour of the wall and the jack manor beyond burnt into her eyes, she was aware of someone coming out of the house, coming towards her, but somehow divined, from the footfall, William Banks, so that though her brush quivered, she did not as she would have done had it been Mr. Tansley, Paul Rayleigh, Minter Doyle, or practically anybody else, turn her canvas upon the grass, but let it stand. William Banks stood beside her. They had rooms in the village, and so, walking in, walking out, parting late on doormats, had said little things about the soup, about the children, about one thing and another, which made them allies, so that when he stood beside her now in his judicial way—he was old enough to be her father too, a botanist, a widower, smelling of soap, very scrupulous and clean—she just stood there. He just stood there. Her shoes were excellent, he observed. They allowed the toes their natural expansion. Lodging in the same house with her, he had noticed too how orderly she was up before breakfast and off to paint, he believed, alone. Poor, presumably, and without the complexion or the allurement of Miss Doyle, certainly, but with a good sense which made her, in his eyes, superior to that young lady. Now, for example, when Ramsay bore down on them, shouting, gesticulating, Miss Briscoe, he felt certain, understood. Someone had blundered. Mr. Ramsay glared at them. He glared at them without seeming to see them. That did make them both vaguely uncomfortable. Together they had seen a thing they had not been meant to see. They had encroached upon a privacy. So, Lily thought, 
it was probably an excuse of his for moving, for getting out of earshot, that made Mr. Banks almost immediately say something about its being chilly, and suggested taking a stroll. She would come, yes. But it was with difficulty that she took her eyes off her picture. The Jack Manor was bright violet, the walls staring white. She would not have considered it honest to tamper with the bright violet and the staring white, since she saw them like that, fashionable though it was, since Mr. Ponsfort's visit, to see everything pale, elegant, semi-transparent. Then, beneath the colour, there was the shape. She could see it all so clearly, so commandingly, when she looked. It was when she took her brush in hand that the whole thing changed. It was in that moment's flight, between the picture and her canvas, that the demons set on her, who often brought her to the verge of tears, and made this passage from conception to work as dreadful as any down a dark passage for a child. Such she often felt herself, struggling against terrific odds to maintain her courage, to say, "'But this is what I see! This is what I see!' and so to clasp some miserable remnant of her vision to her breast, which a thousand forces did their best to pluck from her. And it was then, too, in that chill and windy way, as she began to paint, that there forced themselves upon her other things, her own inadequacy, her insignificance, keeping house for her father off the Brompton Road, and had much ado to control her impulse to fling herself—thank heaven she had always resisted so far at Mrs. Ramsay's knee, and say to her, "'But what could one say to her? "'I'm in love with you.' "'No, that was not true. "'I'm in love with this all,' waving her hand at the hedge, at the house, at the children. It was absurd, it was impossible. So now she laid her brushes neatly in the box, side by side, and said to William Banks, it suddenly gets cold. The sun seems to give less heat," she said, looking about her, for it was bright enough, the grass still a soft deep green, the house starred in its greenery with purple passion-flowers, and rooks dropping cool cries from the high blue. But something moved, flashed, turned a silver wing in the air. It was September, after all, the middle of September, and past six in the evening. So off they strolled down the garden in the usual direction, past the tennis-lawn, past the pampas-grass, to that break in the thick hedge, guarded by red-hot pokers, like braziers of clear burning coal, between which the blue waters of the bay looked bluer than ever. They came there regularly every evening, drawn by some need. It was as if the water floated off and set sailing thoughts which had grown stagnant on dry land and gave to their bodies even some sort of physical relief. First the pulse of colour flooded the bay with blue, and the heart expanded with it and the body swam, only the next instant to be checked and chilled by the prickly blackness on the ruffled waves. Then, up behind the great black rock, almost every evening spurted irregularly, so that one had to watch for it, and it was a delight when it came a fountain of white water. And then, while one waited for that, one watched, on the pale, semicircular beach, 
wave after wave shedding again and again smoothly, a film of mother-of-pearl. They both smiled, standing there. They both felt a common hilarity, excited by the moving waves, and then by the swift cutting race of a sailing-boat, which, having sliced a curve in the bay, stopped, shivered, let its sails drop down, and then, with a natural instinct to complete the picture, after this swift movement, both of them looked at the dunes far away, and instead of merriment felt come over them some sadness, because the thing was completed partly, and partly because distant views seemed to outlast by a million years, Lily thought, the gazer, and to be communing already with a sky which beholds an earth entirely at rest. Looking at the far sand-hills, William Banks thought of Ramsay, thought of a road in Westmoreland, thought of Ramsay striding along a road by himself hung round with that solitude which seemed to be his natural air. But this was suddenly interrupted. William Banks remembered, and this must refer to some actual incident, by a hen, straddling her wings out in protection of a covey of little chicks, upon which Ramsay, stopping, pointed his stick, and said, "'Pretty, pretty!' An odd illumination into his heart, Banks had thought it, which showed his simplicity, his sympathy with humble things. But it seemed to him as if their friendship had ceased, there, on that stretch of road. After that, Ramsay had married. After that, what with one thing and another, the pulp had gone out of their friendship, whose fault it was he could not say. Only, after a time, repetition had taken the place of newness. It was to repeat that they met. But in this dumb colloquy with the sand-dunes he maintained that his affection for Ramsay had in no way diminished, but there, like the body of a young man laid up in peat for a century, with the red fresh on his lips, was his friendship, in its acuteness and reality, laid up across the bay among the sand-hills. He was anxious for the sake of this friendship, and perhaps too in order to clear himself in his own mind from the imputation of having dried and shrunk. For Ramsay lived in a welter of children, whereas Banks was childless and a widower. He was anxious that Lily Briscoe should not disparage Ramsay, a great man in his own way, yet should understand how things stood between them begun long years ago, their friendship had petered out on a Westmoreland road, where the hen spread her wings before her chicks, after which Ramsay had married, and their paths lying different ways, there had been, certainly for no one's fault, some tendency, when they met, to repeat. Yes, that was it. He finished. He turned from the view. And— Turning to walk back the other way, up the drive, Mr. Banks was alive to things which would not have struck him, had not those sand-hills revealed to him the body of his friendship, lying with the red on its lips laid up in peat. For instance, Cam, the little girl, Ramsay's youngest daughter. She was picking sweet Alice on the bank. She was wild and fierce. She would not give a flower to the gentleman, as the nursemaid told her. No, 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 she would not. She clenched her fist. She stamped. 
and Mr. Banks felt aged and saddened, and somehow put into the wrong by her about his friendship. He must have dried and shrunk. The Ramses were not rich, and it was a wonder how they managed to contrive it all. Eight children! To feed eight children on philosophy! Here was another of them, Jasper this time, strolling past, to have a shot at a bird, he said, nonchalantly, swinging Lily's hand like a pump-handle as he passed, which caused Mr. Banks to say, bitterly, how she was a favourite. There was education now to be considered. True, Mrs. Ramsay had something of her own, perhaps. Let alone the daily wear and tear of shoes and stockings which those great fellows, all well-grown, angular, ruthless youngsters, must require. As for being sure which was which, or in what order they came, that was beyond him. He called them privately after the kings and queens of England—Cam the Wicked, James the Ruthless, Andrew the Just, Prue the Fair. For Prue would have beauty, he thought, how could she help it, and Andrew brains. While he walked up the drive, and Lily Briscoe said yes and no, and capped his comments, for she was in love with them all, in love with this world. He weighed Ramsay's case, commiserated him, envied him, as if he had seen him divest himself of all those glories of isolation and austerity which crowned him in youth, to cumber himself definitely with fluttering wings and clucking domesticities. They gave him something. William Banks acknowledged that. It would have been pleasant if Cam had stuck a flower in his coat, or clambered over his shoulder, as over her father's, to look at a picture of Vesuvius in eruption. But they had also—his old friends could not but feel—destroyed something. What would a stranger think now? What did this Lily Briscoe think? Could one help noticing that habits grew on him—eccentricities, weaknesses, perhaps? It was astonishing that a man of his intellect could stoop so low as he did, but that was too harsh a phrase, could depend so much as he did upon people's praise. "'Oh, but,' said Lily, "'think of his work!' Whenever she—thought of his work, she always saw clearly before her a large kitchen-table. It was Andrew's doing. She asked him what his father's books were about. "'Subject and object and the nature of reality,' Andrew had said. And when she said, heavens, she had no idea what that meant. "'Think of a kitchen-table, then,' he told her, "'when you're not there.' So now she always saw, when she thought of Mr. Ramsay's work, a scrubbed kitchen-table. It lodged now in the fork of a pear-tree, for they had reached the orchard and with a painful effort of concentration she focused her mind, not upon the silver-bossed bark of the tree, or upon its fish-shaped leaves, but upon a phantom kitchen-table, one of those scrubbed board-tables, grained and knotted, whose virtue seemed to have been laid bare by years of muscular integrity, which stuck there, its four legs in air. Naturally, if one's days were passed in this seeing of angular essences, this reducing of lovely evenings, with all their flamingo clouds and blue and silver, to a white deal four-legged table—and it was a mark of the finest mind to do so—naturally one could not be judged like an ordinary person. 
Mr. Banks liked her for bidding him think of his work. He had thought of it, often and often. Times without number he had said, "'Ramsay is one of those men who do their best work before they are forty. He had made a definite contribution to philosophy in one little book when he was only five-and-twenty. What came after was more or less amplification, repetition. But the number of men who make a definite contribution to anything whatsoever is very small, he said, pausing by the pear-tree, well-brushed, scrupulously exact, exquisitely judicial. Suddenly, as if the movement of his hand had released it, the load of her accumulated impressions of him tilted up, and down poured in a ponderous avalanche all she felt about him. That was one sensation. Then up rose in a fume the essence of his being. That was another. She felt herself transfixed by the intensity of her perception. It was his severity, his goodness. "'I respect you,' she addressed silently him in person, "'in every atom. You are not vain. You are entirely impersonal. You are finer than Mr. Ramsay. You are the finest human being that I know. You have neither wife nor child.' Without any sexual feeling, she longed to cherish that loneliness. "'You live for science.' Involuntarily, sections of potatoes rose before her eyes. "'Praise would be an insult to you. Generous, pure-hearted, heroic man.' But simultaneously, she remembered how he had brought a valet all the way up here, objected to dogs on chairs, would prose for hours, until Mr. Ramsay slammed out of the room, about salt in vegetables and the iniquity of English cooks. How, then, did it work out, all this? How did one judge people, think of them? How did one add up this and that, and conclude that it was liking one felt, or disliking? And to those words what meaning attached, after all? Standing now, apparently transfixed, by the pear-tree, impressions poured in upon her of those two men, and to follow her thought was like following a voice which speaks too quickly to be taken down by one's pencil, and the voice was her own voice, saying without prompting, undeniable, everlasting, contradictory things, so that even the fissures and humps on the bark of the pear-tree were irrevocably fixed there for eternity. "'You have greatness,' she continued, "'but Mr. Ramsay has none of it. He is petty, selfish, vain, egotistical. He is spoiled. He is a tyrant. He wears Mrs. Ramsay to death. But he has what you—she addressed Mr. Banks—have not. A fiery unworldliness. He knows nothing about trifles. He loves dogs and his children. He has eight. Mr. Banks has none. Did he not come down in two coats the other night, and let Mrs. Ramsay trim his hair into a pudding-basin? All of this danced up and down, like a company of gnats, each separate but all marvellously controlled in an invisible elastic net. Danced up and down in Lily's mind, in and about the branches of the pear-tree, where still hung in effigy the scrubbed kitchen-table, symbol of her profound respect for Mr. Ramsay's mind, until her thought, which had spun quicker and quicker, exploded of its own intensity. She felt released. A shot went off close at hand, and there came, flying from its fragments, frightened, effusive, tumultuous, a flock of starlings. 
Jasper,' said Mr. Banks. They turned the way the starlings flew, over the terrace. Following the scatter of swift-flying birds in the sky, they stepped through the gap in the high hedge, straight into Mr. Ramsay, who boomed tragically at them. Someone had blundered. His eyes, glazed with emotion, defiant with tragic intensity, met theirs for a second, and trembled on the verge of recognition. But then, raising his hand, halfway to his face as if to avert, to brush off, in an agony of peevish shame, their normal gaze, as if he begged them to withhold for a moment what he knew to be inevitable, as if he impressed upon them his own childlike resentment of interruption, yet even in the moment of discovery was not to be routed utterly, but was determined to hold fast to something of this delicious emotion, this impure rhapsody of which he was ashamed, but in which he revelled. He turned abruptly, slammed his private door on them, and Lily Briscoe and Mr. Banks, looking uneasily up into the sky, observed that the flock of starlings which Jasper had routed with his gun had settled on the tops of the elm-trees. CHAPTER V "'And even if it isn't fine to-morrow,' said Mrs. Ramsay, raising her eyes to glance at William Banks and Lily Briscoe as they passed, "'it will be another day.' "'And now,' she said, thinking that Lily's charm was her Chinese eyes, a slant in her white, puckered little face, but it would take a clever man to see it. And now stand up and let me measure your leg. For they might go to the lighthouse after all, and she must see if the stocking did not need to be an inch or two longer in the leg. Smiling, for it was an admirable idea that had flashed upon her this very second, William and Lily should marry. She took the heather mixture stocking, with its criss-cross of steel needles at the mouth of it, and measured it against James's leg. "'My dear, stand still,' she said, for in his jealousy, not liking to serve as measuring-block for the lighthouse-keeper's little boy, James fidgeted purposely. And if he did that, how could she see? Was it too long? Was it too short? she asked. She looked up. What demon possessed him, her youngest, her cherished? and saw the room, saw the chairs, thought them fearfully shabby. Their entrails, as Andrew said the other day, were all over the floor. But then what was the point, she asked, of buying good chairs to let them spoil up here all through the winter, when the house, with only one old woman to see to it, positively dripped with wet? Never mind, the rent was precisely twopence halfpenny. the children loved it. It did her husband good to be three thousand, or if she must be accurate, three hundred miles from his libraries and his lectures and his disciples, and there was room for visitors. Mats, camp-beds, crazy ghosts of chairs and tables whose London life of service was done, they did well enough here, and a photograph or two, and books. Books, she thought, grew of themselves. She never had time to read them. Alas, even the books that had been given her and inscribed by the hand of the poet himself, for her whose wishes must be obeyed, the happier Helen of our days. Disgraceful to say, she had never read them. And Croom on the mind, and Bates on the savage customs of Polynesia. My dear, stand still, she said. Neither one of those could one send to the lighthouse. At a certain moment, she supposed, 
the house would become so shabby that something must be done. If they could be taught to wipe their feet and not bring the beach in with them, that would be something. Crabs she had to allow, if Andrew really wished to dissect them, or if Jasper believed that one could make soup from seaweed, one could not prevent it, or roses objects, shells, reeds, stones, for they were gifted her children, but all in quite different ways. And the result of it was, she sighed, taking in the whole room from floor to ceiling, as she held the stocking against James's leg, that things got shabbier and got shabbier summer after summer. The mat was fading, the wallpaper was flapping. You couldn't tell any more that those were roses on it. Still, if every door in a house is left perpetually open, and no lock-maker in the whole of Scotland can mend a bolt, things must spoil. What was the use of flinging a green cashmere shawl over the edge of a picture-frame? In two weeks it would be the colour of pea-soup. But it was the doors that annoyed her. Every door was left open. She listened. The drawing-room door was open, the hall-door was open, it sounded as if the bedroom doors were open, and certainly the window on the landing was open, for that she had opened herself. That windows should be open and doors shut, simple as it was, could none of them remember it. She would go into the maids' bedrooms at night and find them sealed like ovens, except for Marie's, the Swiss girl, who would rather go without a bath than without fresh air. But then, at home, she had said, The mountains are so beautiful. She had said that last night, looking out of the window with tears in her eyes. The mountains are so beautiful. Her father was dying there, Mrs. Ramsay knew. He was leaving them fatherless. Scolding and demonstrating, how to make a bed, how to open a window, with hands that shut and spread like a Frenchwoman's, all had folded itself quietly about her when the girl spoke, as, after a flight through the sunshine, the wings of a bird fold themselves quietly, and the blue of its plumage changes from bright steel to soft purple. She had stood there silent, for there was nothing to be said. He had cancer of the throat. At the recollection, how she had stood there, how the girl had said, At home the mountains are so beautiful. And there was no hope, no hope whatever. She had a spasm of irritation, and speaking sharply said to James, Stand still, don't be tiresome, so that he knew instantly that her severity was real, and straightened his leg, and she measured it. The stocking was too short by half an inch at least, making allowance for the fact that Sawley's little boy would be less well-grown than James. "'It's too short,' she said, "'ever so much too short.' Never did anybody look so sad. Bitter and black, halfway down in the darkness, in the shaft which ran from the sunlight to the depths, maybe a tear formed, a tear fell, the waters swayed this way and that, received it, and were at rest. Never did anybody look so sad. But was it nothing but looks, people said? What was there behind it, her beauty and splendour? Had he blown his brains out, they asked, had he died the week before they were married, some other, earlier lover, of whom rumours reached one? Or was there nothing? nothing but an incomparable beauty which she lived behind, and could do nothing to disturb. 
for easily though she might have said at some moment of intimacy, when stories of great passion, of love foiled, of ambition thwarted, came her way, how she too had known or felt or been through it herself, she never spoke. She was silent always. She knew then, she knew without having learnt. Her simplicity fathomed what clever people falsified. Her singleness of mind made her drop plumb like a stone, alight exact as a bird, gave her, naturally, this swoop and fall of the spirit upon truth which delighted, eased, sustained, falsely perhaps. "'Nature has but little clay,' said Mr. Banks once, much moved by her voice on the telephone, though she was only telling him a fact about a train, like that of which she moulded you. He saw her at the end of the line, Greek, blue-eyed, straight-nosed. How incongruous it seemed to be telephoning to a woman like that! The graces assembling seemed to have joined hands in meadows of asphodel to compose that face. Yes, he would catch the ten-thirty at Euston. "'But she's no more aware of her beauty than a child,' said Mr. Banks, replacing the receiver and crossing the room to see what progress the workmen were making with a hotel which they were building at the back of his house. And he thought of Mrs. Ramsay as he looked at that stir among the unfinished walls. For always, he thought, there was something incongruous to be worked into the harmony of her face. She clapped a deer-stalker's hat on her head, she ran across the garden in galoshes to snatch a child from mischief. So that, if it was her beauty merely that one thought of, one must remember the quivering thing, the living thing—they were carrying bricks up a little plank as he watched them—and work it into the picture. Or, if one thought of her simply as a woman, one must endow her with some freak of idiosyncrasy. She did not like admiration. Or suppose some latent desire to doff her form of royalty, as if her beauty bored her and all that men say of beauty and she wanted only to be like other people, insignificant. He did not know, he did not know, he must go to his work. Knitting her reddish-brown hairy stocking, with her head outlined absurdly by the gilt frame, the green shawl which she had tossed over the edge of the frame, and the authenticated masterpiece by Michelangelo, Mrs. Ramsay smoothed out what had been harsh in her manner a moment before raised his head and kissed her little boy on the forehead. "'Let us find another picture to cut out,' she said. End of section 2 Section 3 of To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 But what had happened? Someone had blundered. Starting from her musing, she gave meaning to words which she had held meaningless in her mind for a long stretch of time. Someone had blundered. Fixing her short-sighted eyes upon her husband, who was now bearing down upon her, she gazed steadily until his closeness revealed to her—the jingle mated itself in her head—that something had happened, someone had blundered. But she could not for the life of her think what. He shivered, he quivered, all his vanity, all his satisfaction in his own splendour, riding fell as a thunderbolt, fierce as a hawk at the head of his men through the valley of death, had been shattered, destroyed. 
stormed at by shot and shell, boldly we rode and well, flashed through the valley of death, volleyed and thundered, straight into Lily Briscoe and William Banks. He quivered, he shivered. Not for the world would she have spoken to him, realising, from the familiar signs, his eyes averted and some curious gathering together of his person, as if he wrapped himself about and needed privacy into which to regain his equilibrium, that he was outraged and anguished. She stroked James's head, she transferred to him what she felt for her husband, and, as she watched him chalk yellow the white dress shirt of a gentleman in the Army and Navy Store's catalogue, thought what a delight it would be to her should he turn out a great artist, and why should he not? He had a splendid forehead. Then, looking up, as her husband passed her once more, she was relieved to find that the ruin was veiled, domesticity triumphed, custom crooned its soothing rhythm, so that when stopping deliberately, as his turn came round again, at the window he bent quizzically and whimsically to tickle James's bare calf with a sprig of something, she twitted him for having dispatched that poor young man, Charles Tansley. Tansley had had to go in and write his dissertation, he said. "'James will have to write his dissertation one of these days,' he added ironically, flicking his sprig. Hating his father, James brushed away the tickling spray, with which, in a manner peculiar to him, compound of severity and humour, he teased his youngest son's bare leg. "'She was trying to get these tiresome stockings finished to send to Sawley's little boy to-morrow,' said Mrs. Ramsay. "'There wasn't the slightest possible chance that they could go to the lighthouse to-morrow,' Mr. Ramsay snapped out irascibly. "'How did he know?' she asked. The wind often changed. The extraordinary irrationality of her remark, the folly of women's minds, enraged him. He had ridden through the valley of death, been shattered and shivered, and now she flew in the face of facts, made his children hope what was utterly out of the question, in effect told lies. He stamped his foot on the stone step. "'Damn you!' he said. But what had she said? simply that it might be fine to-morrow. So it might. Not with the barometer falling and the wind due west. To pursue truth with such astonishing lack of consideration for other people's feelings, to rend the thin veils of civilization so wantonly, so brutally, was to her so horrible an outrage of human decency, that, without replying, dazed and blinded, she bent her head as if to let the pelt of jagged hail the drench of dirty water bespatter her unrebuked. There was nothing to be said. He stood by her in silence. Very humbly, at length, he said that he would step over and ask the coastguards if she liked. There was nobody whom she reverenced as she reverenced him. She was quite ready to take his word for it, she said. Only then they need not cut sandwiches, that was all. They came to her naturally, since she was a woman, all day long with this and that, one wanting this, another that. The children were growing up. She often felt she was nothing but a sponge sopped full of human emotions. Then he said, "'Damn you!' He said, "'It must rain!' He said, "'It won't rain!' And instantly a heaven of security opened before her. There was nobody she reverenced more. 
She was not good enough to tie his shoelaces, she felt. Already ashamed of that petulance, of that gesticulation of the hands when charging at the head of his troops, Mr. Ramsay rather sheepishly prodded his son's bare legs once more, and then, as if he had her leave for it, with a movement which oddly reminded his wife of the great sea-lion at the zoo tumbling backwards after swallowing his fish, and walloping off so that the water in the tank washes from side to side, he dived into the evening air, which, already thinner, was taking the substance from leaves and hedges, but, as if by return, restoring to roses and pinks a lustre which they had not had by day. "'Someone had blundered,' he said again, striding off, up and down the terrace. But how extraordinarily his note had changed! It was like the cuckoo. In June he gets out of tune as if he were trying over, tentatively seeking, some phrase for a new mood, and having only this at hand, used it, cracked though it was. But it sounded ridiculous. Someone had blundered. Said like that, almost as a question, without any conviction, melodiously. Mrs. Ramsay could not help smiling, and soon, sure enough, walking up and down, he hummed it, dropped it, fell silent. He was safe. He was restored to his privacy. He stopped to light his pipe, looked once at his wife and son in the window, and, as one raises one's eyes from a page in an express train, and sees a farm, a tree, a cluster of cottages as an illustration, a confirmation of something on the printed page, to which one returns, fortified and satisfied, so, without his distinguishing either his son or his wife, the sight of them fortified him and satisfied him, and consecrated his effort to arrive at a perfectly clear understanding of the problem which now engaged the energies of his splendid mind. It was a splendid mind. For if thought is like the keyboard of a piano, divided into so many notes, or like the alphabet is ranged in twenty-six letters all in order, then his splendid mind had no sort of difficulty in running over those letters one by one, firmly and accurately, until it had reached, say, the letter Q. He reached Q. Very few people in the whole of England ever reach Q. Here, stopping for one moment by the stone urn which held the geraniums, he saw, but now far, far away, like children picking up shells, divinely innocent and occupied with little trifles at their feet, and somehow entirely defenceless against a doom which he perceived, his wife and son together in the window. They needed his protection. He gave it them. But after Q, what comes next? After Q there are a number of letters, the last of which is scarcely visible to mortal eyes, but glimmers red in the distance. Z is only reached once by one man in a generation. Still, if he could reach R, it would be something. Here at least was Q. He dug his heels in at Q. Q he was sure of. Q he could demonstrate. If Q is Q, R— Here he knocked his pipe out, with two or three resonant taps on the handle of the urn, and proceeded. Then R— he braced himself. He clenched himself. 
qualities that would have saved a ship's company exposed on a broiling sea with six biscuits and a flask of water, endurance and justice, foresight, devotion, skill, came to his help. R is then—what is R? A shutter, like the leathern eyelid of a lizard, flickered over the intensity of his gaze and obscured the letter R. In that flash of darkness he heard people saying, he was a failure, that R was beyond him, he would never reach R, on to R once more, R. Qualities that, in a desolate expedition across the icy solitudes of the polar region, would have made him the leader, the guide, the counsellor, whose temper, neither sanguine nor despondent, surveys with equanimity what is to be and faces it, came to his help again. R. The lizard's eye flickered once more. The veins on his forehead bulged. The geranium in the urn became startlingly visible, and, displayed among its leaves, he could see, without wishing it, that old, that obvious distinction between the two classes of men, on the one hand the steady-goers of superhuman strength, who, plodding and persevering, repeat the whole alphabet in order, twenty-six letters in all, from start to finish. On the other, the gifted, the inspired, who, miraculously, lump all the letters together in one flash, the way of genius. He had not genius, he laid no claim to that. But he had, or might have had, the power to repeat every letter of the alphabet from A to Z accurately in order. Meanwhile he stuck at Q. On, then, on to R. Feelings that would not have disgraced a leader, who, now that the snow has begun to fall and the mountain-top is covered in mist, knows that he must lay himself down and die before morning comes, stole upon him, paling the colour of his eyes, giving him, even in the two minutes of his turn on the terrace, the bleached look of withered old age. Yet he would not die lying down, he would find some crag of rock, and there, his eyes fixed on the storm, trying to the end to pierce the darkness, he would die standing. He would never reach R. He stood stock-still by the urn, with the geranium flowing over it. How many men in a thousand million, he asked himself, reach Z after all? Surely the leader of a forlorn hope may ask himself that, and answer, without treachery to the expedition behind him, one, perhaps. One in a generation. Is he to be blamed, then, if he is not that one, provided he has toiled honestly, given to the best of his power, until he has no more left to give? And his fame lasts how long? It is permissible even for a dying hero to think before he dies how men will speak of him hereafter. His fame lasts perhaps two thousand years. And what are two thousand years? asked Mr. Ramsay ironically, staring at the hedge. What indeed if you look from a mountain-top down the long wastes of the ages? The very stone one kicks with one's boot will outlast Shakespeare. His own little light would shine, not very brightly, for a year or two, and would then be merged in some bigger light, and that in a bigger still. He looked into the hedge, into the intricacy of the twigs. 
who then could blame the leader of that forlorn party, which, after all, has climbed high enough to see the waste of the years and the perishing of the stars, if, before death stiffens his limbs beyond the power of movement, he does, a little consciously, raise his numbed fingers to his brow and square his shoulders, so that when the search-party comes they will find him dead at his post, the fine figure of a soldier. Mr. Ramsay squared his shoulders and stood very upright by the urn. Who shall blame him if, so standing for a moment, he dwells upon fame, upon search-parties, upon cairns raised by grateful followers over his bones? Finally, who shall blame the leader of the doomed expedition, if, having adventured to the uttermost, and used his strength wholly to the last ounce, and fallen asleep not much caring if he wakes or not, he now perceives by some pricking in his toes that he lives, and does not on the whole object to live, but requires sympathy and whisky, and someone to tell the story of his suffering to at once. Who shall blame him? Who will not secretly rejoice when the hero puts his armour off, and halts by the window and gazes at his wife and son, who, very distant at first, gradually come closer and closer, till lips and book and head are clearly before him, though still lovely and unfamiliar from the intensity of his isolation, and the waste of ages and the perishing of the stars, and finally, putting his pipe in his pocket, and bending his magnificent head before her, who will blame him if he does homage to the beauty of the world? CHAPTER Seven. But his son hated him. He hated him for coming up to them, for stopping and looking down on them, he hated him for interrupting them, he hated him for the exultation and sublimity of his gestures, for the magnificence of his head, for his exactingness and egotism, for there he stood, commanding them to attend to him. But most of all he hated the twang and twitter of his father's emotion, which, vibrating round them, disturbed the perfect simplicity and good sense of his relations with his mother. By looking fixedly at the page, he hoped to make him move on. By pointing his finger at a word, he hoped to recall his mother's attention, which, he knew angrily, wavered instantly his father stopped. But no, nothing would make Mr. Ramsay move on. There he stood, demanding sympathy. Mrs. Ramsay, who had been sitting loosely, folding her son in her arm, braced herself, and, half turning, seemed to raise herself with an effort, and at once to pour erect into the air a rain of energy, a column of spray, looking at the same time animated and alive, as if all her energies were being fused into force, burning and illuminating, quietly though she sat, taking up her stocking again, and into this delicious fecundity, this fountain and spray of life, the fatal sterility of the male plunged itself, like a beak of brass, barren and bare. He wanted sympathy. He was a failure, he said. Mrs. Ramsay flashed her needles. Mr. Ramsay repeated, never taking his eyes from her face, that he was a failure. She blew the words back at him. "'Charles Tansley,' she said. But he must have more than that. It was sympathy he wanted, to be assured of his genius, first of all, and then to be taken within the circle of life, 
warmed and soothed, to have his senses restored to him, his barrenness made fertile, and all the rooms of the house made full of life, the drawing-room, behind the drawing-room the kitchen, above the kitchen the bedrooms, and beyond them the nurseries, they must be furnished, they must be filled with life. Charles Tansley thought him the greatest metaphysician of the time, she said. But he must have more than that, he must have sympathy, he must be assured that he too lived in the heart of life, was needed, not only here but all over the world. Flashing her needles, confident, upright, she created drawing-room and kitchen, set them all aglow, bade him take his ease there, go in and out, enjoy himself. She laughed, she knitted. Standing between her knees, very stiff, James felt all her strength flaring up to be drunk and quenched by the beak of brass, the arid scimitar of the male, which smote mercilessly again and again, demanding sympathy. He was a failure, he repeated. Well, look then, feel then. Flashing her needles, glancing round about her, out of the window, into the room, at James himself, she assured him, beyond a shadow of a doubt, by her laugh, her poise, her competence, as a nurse carrying a light across a dark room assures a fractious child, that it was real, the house was full, the garden blowing. If he put implicit faith in her, nothing should hurt him, however deep he buried himself or climbed high, not for a second should he find himself without her. So boasting of her capacity to surround and protect, there was scarcely a shell of herself left for her to know herself by, all was so lavished and spent, and James, as he stood stiff between her knees, felt her rise in a rosy-flowered fruit-tree, laid with leaves and dancing boughs, into which the beak of brass, the arid scimitar of his father, the egotistical man, plunged and smote, demanding sympathy. Filled with her words, like a child who drops off satisfied, he said, at last, looking at her with humble gratitude, restored, renewed, that he would take a turn, he would watch the children playing cricket. He went. Immediately Mrs. Ramsay seemed to fold herself together, one petal closed in another, and the whole fabric fell in exhaustion upon itself, so that she had only strength enough to move her finger, in exquisite abandonment to exhaustion, across the page of Grimm's fairy story, while there throbbed through her, like a pulse in spring which has expanded to its full width, and now gently ceases to beat, the rapture of successful creation. Every throb of this pulse seemed, as he walked away, to enclose her and her husband, and to give to each that solace which two different notes, one high, one low, struck together, seemed to give each other as they combine. Yet as the resonance died, and she turned to the fairy-tale again, Mrs. Ramsay felt not only exhausted in body—afterwards, not at the time, she always felt this—but also there tinged her physical fatigue some faintly disagreeable sensation with another origin. Not that, as she read aloud the story of the fisherman's wife, she knew precisely what it came from, nor did she let herself put into words her dissatisfaction, when she realised, at the turn of the page, when she stopped and heard dully, 
ominously, a wave fall, how it came from this. She did not like, even for a second, to feel finer than her husband, and further could not bear not being entirely sure, when she spoke to him, of the truth of what she said. Universities and people wanting him, lectures and books and their being of the highest importance, all that she did not doubt for a moment. But it was their relation, and his coming to her like that, openly, so that any one could see, that discomposed her, for then people said he depended on her, when they must know that of the two he was infinitely the more important, and what she gave the world, in comparison with what he gave, negligible. But then again it was the other thing, too, not being able to tell him the truth, being afraid, for instance, about the greenhouse roof and the expense it would be, fifty pounds, perhaps, to mend it, and then about his books, to be afraid that he might guess, what she a little suspected, that his last book was not quite his best book, she gathered that from William Banks, and then to hide small daily things, and the children seeing it, and the burden it laid on them, all this diminished the entire joy the pure joy of the two notes sounding together, and let the sound die on her ear now with a dismal flatness. A shadow was on the page. She looked up. It was Augustus Carmichael shuffling past, precisely now, at the very moment when it was painful to be reminded of the inadequacy of human relationships, that the most perfect was flawed, and could not bear the examination which, loving her husband, with her instinct for truth, she turned upon it. When it was painful to feel herself convicted of unworthiness, and impeded in her proper function by these lies, these exaggerations, it was at this moment, when she was fretted thus ignobly in the wake of her exultation, that Mr. Carmichael shuffled past, in his yellow slippers, and some demon in her made it necessary for her to call out, as he passed, "'Going indoors, Mr. Carmichael?' Chapter Eight. He said nothing. He took opium. The children said he had stained his beard yellow with it. Perhaps. What was obvious to her was that the poor man was unhappy, came to them every year as an escape, and yet every year she felt the same thing, he did not trust her. She said, "'I am going to the town. Shall I get you stamps, paper, tobacco?' and she felt him wince. He did not trust her. It was his wife's doing. She remembered that iniquity of his wife's towards him, which had made her turn to steel and adamant there, in the horrible little room in St. John's Wood, when, with her own eyes, she had seen that odious woman turn him out of the house. He was unkempt. He dropped things on his coat. He had the tiresomeness of an old man with nothing in the world to do, and she turned him out of the room. She said, in her odious way, "'Now, Mrs. Ramsay and I want to have a little talk together.' And Mrs. Ramsay could see, as if before her eyes, the innumerable miseries of his life. Had he money enough to buy tobacco? Did he have to ask her for it? Half a crown? Eighteen pence? Oh, she could not bear to think of the little indignities she made him suffer. And always now—why, she could not guess, except that it came probably from that woman somehow, 
He shrank from her. He never told her anything. But what more could she have done? There was a sunny room given up to him. The children were good to him. Never did she show a sign of not wanting him. She went out of her way, indeed, to be friendly. Do you want stamps? Do you want tobacco? Here's a book you might like, and so on. And after all, after all—here, insensibly, she drew herself together, physically, the sense of her own beauty becoming, as it did so seldom, present to her. After all, she had not generally any difficulty in making people like her. For instance, George Manning, Mr. Wallace, famous as they were, they would come to her of an evening, quietly, and talk alone over her fire. She bore about with her—she could not help knowing it—the torch of her beauty. She carried it erect into any room that she entered. And after all, fail it as she might, and shrink from the monotony of bearing that it imposed on her, her beauty was apparent. She had been admired. She had been loved. She had entered rooms where mourners sat. Tears had flown in her presence. Men, and women too, letting go to the multiplicity of things, had allowed themselves with her the relief of simplicity. It injured her that he should shrink. It hurt her. And yet not cleanly, not rightly. That was what she minded, coming as it did on top of her discontent with her husband. The sense she had now, when Mr. Carmichael shuffled past, just nodding to her question, with a book beneath his arm in his yellow slippers, that she was suspected, and that all this desire of hers to give, to help, was vanity. For her own self-satisfaction was it that she wished so instinctively to help, to give, that people might say of her, "'Oh, Mrs. Ramsay! Dear Mrs. Ramsay! Mrs. Ramsay, of course!' and need her, and send for her, and admire her. Was it not secretly this that she wanted? And therefore, when Mr. Carmichael shrank away from her, as he did at this moment, making off to some corner where he did acrostics endlessly, she did not feel merely snubbed back in her instinct, but made aware of the pettiness of some part of her, and of human relations, how flawed they are, how despicable, how self-seeking, at their best. Shabby and worn out, and not presumably, her cheeks were hollow, her hair was white, any longer a sight that filled the eyes with joy, she had better devote her mind to the story of the fisherman and his wife, and so pacify that bundle of sensitiveness—none of her children was as sensitive as he was—her son James. The man's heart grew heavy, she read aloud, and he would not go. He said to himself, It is not right, and yet he went and when he came to the sea the water was quite purple and dark blue, and grey and thick, and no longer so green and yellow, but it was still quiet. And he stood there and said— Mrs. Ramsay could have wished that her husband had not chosen that moment to stop. Why had he not gone, as he said, to watch the children playing cricket? But he did not speak. He looked, he nodded, he approved, he went on. He slipped, seeing before him that hedge which had, over and over again, rounded some pause, signified some conclusion, seeing his wife and child, 
seeing again the urns with the trailing of red geraniums which had so often decorated processes of thought, and bore up, written among their leaves, as if they were scraps of paper on which one scribbles notes in the rush of reading, he slipped, seeing all this, smoothly into speculation suggested by an article in the Times, about the number of Americans who visit Shakespeare's house every year. If Shakespeare had never existed, he asked, would the world have differed much from what it is to-day? Does the progress of civilization depend upon great men? Is the lot of the average human being better now than in the time of the pharaohs? Is the lot of the average human being, however, he asked himself, the criterion by which we judge the measure of civilization? Possibly not. Possibly the greatest good requires the existence of a slave-class. The lift-man in the tube is an eternal necessity. The thought was distasteful to him. He tossed his head. To avoid it, he would find some way of snubbing the predominance of the arts. He would argue that the world exists for the average human being, that the arts are merely a decoration imposed on the top of human life, they do not express it nor is Shakespeare necessary to it. Not knowing precisely why it was that he wanted to disparage Shakespeare, and come to the rescue of the man who stands eternally in the door of the lift, he picked a leaf sharply from the hedge. All this would have to be dished up for the young men at Cardiff next month, he thought. Here on his terrace he was merely foraging and picnicking—he threw away the leaf that he had picked so peevishly like a man who reaches from his horse to pick a bunch of roses, or stuffs his pockets with nuts as he ambles at his ease through the lanes and fields of a country known to him from boyhood. It was all familiar, this turning, that style, that cut across the fields. Hours he would spend thus, with his pipe, of an evening, thinking up and down and in and out of the old familiar lanes and commons, which were all stuck about with the history of that campaign there, the life of this statesman here, with poems and with anecdotes, with figures, too, this thinker, that soldier, all very brisk and clear, but at length the lane, the field, the common, the fruitful nut-tree and the flowering hedge, led him on to that further turn of the road where he dismounted always, tied his horse to a tree, and proceeded on foot alone. He reached the edge of the lawn and looked out on the bay beneath. It was his fate, his peculiarity, whether he wished it or not, to come out thus on a spit of land which the sea is slowly eating away, and there to stand, like a desolate sea-bird, alone. It was his power, his gift, suddenly to shed all superfluities, to shrink and diminish so that he looked barer and felt sparer even physically, yet lost none of his intensity of mind, and so to stand on his little ledge facing the dark of human ignorance, how we know nothing, and the sea eats away the ground we stand on. That was his fate, his gift. But having thrown away, when he dismounted, all gestures and fripperies, all trophies of nuts and roses, and shrunk so that not only fame but even his own name was forgotten by him, kept, even in that desolation, a vigilance which spared no phantom and luxuriated in no vision, and it was in this guise that he inspired in William Banks, 
intermittently, and in Charles Tansley, obsequiously, and in his wife now, when she looked up and saw him standing at the edge of the lawn, profoundly, reverence, and pity, and gratitude too, as a stake driven into the bed of a channel upon which the gulls perch and the waves beat, inspires in merry boatloads a feeling of gratitude for the duty it is taking upon itself of marking the channel out there in the floods alone. But the father of eight children has no choice. Muttering half aloud, so he broke off, turned, sighed, raised his eyes, sought the figure of his wife reading stories to his little boy, filled his pipe. He turned from the sight of human ignorance and human fate, and the sea eating the ground we stand on, which, had he been able to contemplate it fixedly, might have led to something, and found consolation in trifles so slight compared with the august theme just now before him, that he was disposed to slur that comfort over, to deprecate it, as if to be caught happy in a world of misery was, for an honest man, the most despicable of crimes. It was true. He was, for the most part, happy. He had his wife. He had his children. He had promised in six weeks' time to talk some nonsense to the young men of Cardiff about Locke, Hume, Berkeley, and the causes of the French Revolution. But this, and his pleasure in it, his glory in the phrases he made, in the ardour of youth, in his wife's beauty, in the tributes that reached him from Swansea, Cardiff, Exeter, Southampton, Kidderminster, Oxford, Cambridge, all had to be deprecated and concealed under the phrase, talking nonsense, because in effect he had not done the thing he might have done. It was a disguise. It was the refuge of a man afraid to own his own feelings, who could not say, This is what I like, this is what I am, and rather pitiable and distasteful to William Banks and Lily Briscoe, who wondered why such concealments should be necessary, why he needed always praise, why so brave a man in thought should be so timid in life, how strangely he was venerable and laughable at one and the same time. Teaching and preaching is beyond human power, Lily suspected. She was putting away her things. If you are exalted, you must somehow come a cropper. Mrs. Ramsay gave him what he asked too easily. Then the change must be so upsetting, Lily said. He comes in from his books and finds us all playing games and talking nonsense. Imagine what a change from the things he thinks about, she said. He was bearing down upon them. Now he stopped dead and stood looking in silence at the sea. Now he had turned away again. End of section 3 Section 4 of To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Yes, Mr. Banks said, watching him go, it was a thousand pities. Lily had said something about his frightening her. He changed from one mood to another so suddenly. Yes, said Mr. Banks, it was a thousand pities that Ramsay could not behave a little more like other people for he liked Lily Briscoe, he could discuss Ramsay with her quite openly. 
It was for that reason, he said, that the young don't read Carlyle. A crusty old grumbler who lost his temper if the porridge was cold, why should he preach to us? was what Mr. Banks understood that young people said nowadays. It was a thousand pities if you thought, as he did, that Carlyle was one of the great teachers of mankind. Lily was ashamed to say that she had not read Carlyle since she was at school. But in her opinion one liked Mr. Ramsay all the better for thinking that if his little finger ached the whole world must come to an end. It was not that she minded. For who could be deceived by him? He asked you quite openly to flatter him, to admire him, his little dodges deceived nobody. What she disliked was his narrowness, his blindness, she said, looking after him. "'A bit of a hypocrite,' Mr. Banks suggested, looking too at Mr. Ramsay's back, for was he not thinking of his friendship, and of Cam refusing to give him a flower, and of all those boys and girls, and his own house, full of comfort, but, since his wife's death, quiet rather. Of course he had his work. All the same he rather wished Lily to agree that Ramsay was, as he said, a bit of a hypocrite. Lily Briscoe went on putting away her brushes, looking up, looking down. Looking up there he was, Mr. Ramsay, advancing towards them, swinging, careless, oblivious, remote. A bit of a hypocrite, she repeated. Oh, no, the most sincere of men, the truest, here he was, the best. But looking down, she thought, he is absorbed in himself, he is tyrannical, he is unjust, and kept looking down, purposely, for only so could she keep steady, staying with the Ramses. Directly one looked up and saw them. What she called being in love flooded them. They became part of that unreal but penetrating and exciting universe which is the world seen through the eyes of love. The sky stuck to them, the birds sang through them. And, what was even more exciting, she felt too, as she saw Mr. Ramsay bearing down and retreating, and Mrs. Ramsay sitting with James in the window, and the cloud moving and the tree bending. How life, from being made up of little separate incidents which one lived one by one, became curled and whole like a wave which bore one up and threw one down with it, there, with a dash on the beach. Mr. Banks expected her to answer. And she was about to say something criticising Mrs. Ramsay, how she was alarming too, in her way, high-handed, or words to that effect when Mr. Banks made it entirely unnecessary for her to speak by his rapture. For such it was, considering his age, turned sixty, and his cleanliness and his impersonality, and the white scientific coat which seemed to clothe him. For him to gaze as Lily saw him gazing at Mrs. Ramsay was a rapture, equivalent, Lily felt, to the loves of dozens of young men and perhaps Mrs. Ramsay had never excited the loves of dozens of young men. It was love, she thought, pretending to move her canvas, distilled and filtered, love that never attempted to clutch its object, but, like the love which mathematicians bear their symbols, or poets their phrases, was meant to be spread over the world, and become part of the human gain. So it was indeed. 
the world by all means should have shared it, could Mr. Banks have said why that woman pleased him so, why the sight of her reading a fairy-tale to her boy had upon him precisely the same effect as the solution of a scientific problem, so that he rested in contemplation of it, and felt, as he felt when he had proved something absolute about the digestive system of plants, that barbarity was tamed, the reign of chaos subdued. Such a rapture, for by what other name could one call it, made Lily Briscoe forget entirely what she had been about to say. It was nothing of importance, something about Mrs. Ramsay. It paled beside this rapture, this silent stare, for which she felt intense gratitude, for nothing so solaced her, eased her of the perplexity of life, and miraculously raised its burdens, as this sublime power, this heavenly gift, and one would no more disturb it, while it lasted, than break up the shaft of sunlight, lying level across the floor. That people should love like this, that Mr. Banks should feel this for Mrs. Ramsay—she glanced at him, musing—was helpful, was exulting. She wiped one brush after another upon a piece of old rag, menially, on purpose. She took shelter from the reverence which covered all women, she felt herself praised. Let him gaze, she would steal a look at her picture. She could have wept. It was bad, it was bad, it was infinitely bad. She could have done it differently, of course. The colour could have been thinned and faded, the shapes etherealized. That was how Ponsfort would have seen it. But then she did not see it like that. She saw the colour burning on a framework of steel, the light of a butterfly's wing lying upon the arches of a cathedral. Of all that only a few random marks scrawled upon the canvas remained. And it would never be seen, never be hung even, and there was Mr. Tansley whispering in her ear, "'Women can't paint, women can't write.' She now remembered what she had been going to say about Mrs. Ramsay. She did not know how she would have put it, but it would have been something critical. She had been annoyed the other night by some high-handedness. Looking along the level of Mr. Banks's glance at her, she thought that no woman could worship another woman in the way he worshipped. They could only seek shelter under the shade which Mr. Banks extended over them both. Looking along his beam she added to it her different ray, thinking that she was unquestionably the loveliest of people, bowed over her book the best, perhaps, but also different, too, from the perfect shape which one saw there. But why different, and how different? she asked herself, scraping her palette of all those mounds of blue and green, which seemed to her like clods with no life in them now, yet she vowed she would inspire them, force them to move, flow, do her bidding to-morrow. How did she differ? What was the spirit in her? the essential thing, by which, had you found a crumpled glove in the corner of a sofa, you would have known it, from its twisted finger, hers indisputably. She was like a bird for speed, an arrow for directness. She was wilful, she was commanding. Of course, Lily reminded herself, I am thinking of her relations with women, and I am much younger, an insignificant person, living off the Brompton Road. She opened bedroom windows, she shut doors. 
so she tried to start the tune of Mrs. Ramsay in her head. Arriving late at night, with a light tap on one's bedroom door, wrapped in an old fur coat—for the setting of her beauty was always that, hasty but apt—she would enact again whatever it might be, Charles Tansley losing his umbrella, Mr. Carmichael snuffling and sniffing, Mr. Banks saying, "'The vegetable salts are lost.' All this she would adroitly shape, even maliciously twist, and, moving over to the window, in pretence that she must go—it was dawn, she could see the sun rising—half turn back, more intimately, but still always laughing, insist that she must, Minter must, they all must marry, since in the whole world whatever laurels might be tossed to her—but Mrs. Ramsay cared not a fig for her painting, or triumphs won by her—probably Mrs. Ramsay had had her share of those and here she saddened, darkened, and came back to her chair. There could be no disputing this. An unmarried woman—she lightly took her hand for a moment—an unmarried woman has missed the best of life. The house seemed full of children sleeping and Mrs. Ramsay listening, shaded lights and regular breathing. Oh, but, Lily would say, there was her father, her home, even— had she dared to say it, her painting. But all this seemed so little, so virginal, against the other. Yet, as the night wore on, and white lights parted the curtains, and even now and then some bird chirped in the garden, gathering a desperate courage she would urge her own exemption from the universal law, plead for it. She liked to be alone, she liked to be herself, she was not made for that and so have to meet a serious stare from eyes of unparalleled depth, and confront Mrs. Ramsay's simple certainty—and she was childlike now—that her dear Lily, her little brisk, was a fool. Then, she remembered, she had laid her head on Mrs. Ramsay's lap, and laughed and laughed and laughed, laughed almost hysterically at the thought of Mrs. Ramsay presiding with immutable calm over destinies which she completely failed to understand. There she sat, simple, serious. She had recovered her sense of her now, this was the glove's twisted finger. But into what sanctuary had one penetrated? Lily Briscoe had looked up at last, and there was Mrs. Ramsay, unwitting entirely what had caused her laughter, still presiding but now with every trace of wilfulness abolished, and, in its stead, something clear as the space which the clouds at last uncover, the little space of sky which sleeps beside the moon. Was it wisdom? Was it knowledge? Was it, once more, the deceptiveness of beauty, so that all one's perceptions, halfway to truth, were tangled in a golden mesh? Or did she lock up within her some secret, which certainly Lily Briscoe believed people must have for the world to go on at all. Every one could not be as helter-skelter, hand-to-mouth as she was. But if they knew, could they tell one what they knew? Sitting on the floor with her arms round Mrs. Ramsay's knees, close as she could get, smiling to think that Mrs. Ramsay would never know the reason of that pressure, she imagined how— in the chambers of the mind and heart of the woman who was, physically touching her, were stood, like the treasures in the tombs of kings, 
tablets bearing sacred inscriptions, which, if one could spell them out, would teach one everything, but they would never be offered openly, never made public. What art was there, known to love or cunning, by which one pressed through into those secret chambers? What device for becoming, like waters poured into one jar, inextricably the same, one with the object one adored? Could the body achieve, or the mind, subtly mingling in the intricate passages of the brain, or the heart? Could loving, as people called it, make her and Mrs. Ramsay one? For it was not knowledge, but unity that she desired, not inscriptions on tablets, nothing that could be written in any language known to men, but intimacy itself, which is knowledge, she had thought, leaning her head on Mrs. Ramsay's knee. Nothing happened, nothing, nothing, as she leant her head against Mrs. Ramsay's knee. And yet she knew knowledge and wisdom were stored up in Mrs. Ramsay's heart. How, then, she had asked herself, did one know one thing or another thing about people, sealed as they were? Only like a bee, drawn by some sweetness or sharpness in the air, intangible to touch or taste, one haunted the dome-shaped hive, ranged the wastes of the air over the countries of the world alone, and then haunted the hives with their murmurs and their stirrings, the hives which were people. Mrs. Ramsay rose, Lily rose, Mrs. Ramsay went. For days there hung about her, as after a dream some subtle change is felt in the person one has dreamt of, more vividly than anything she said, the sound of murmuring, and, as she sat in the wicker armchair in the drawing-room window, she wore, to Lily's eyes, an august shape, the shape of a dome. This ray passed level with Mr. Banks's ray straight to Mrs. Ramsay, sitting reading there with James at her knee. But now, while she still looked, Mr. Banks had done. He had put on his spectacles, he had stepped back, he had raised his hand, he had slightly narrowed his clear blue eyes, when Lily, rousing herself, saw what he was at, and winced like a dog who sees a hand raised to strike it. She would have snatched her picture off the easel, but she said to herself, One must. She braced herself to stand the awful trial of someone looking at her picture. One must, she said, one must. And, if it must be seen, Mr. Banks was less alarming than another. But that any other eyes should see the residue of her thirty-three years, the deposit of each day's living mixed with something more secret than she had ever spoken or shown in the course of all those days, was an agony. At the same time it was immensely exciting. Nothing could be cooler and quieter. Taking out a penknife, Mr. Banks tapped the canvas with the bone handle. What did she wish to indicate by the triangular purple shape, just there? he asked. It was Mrs. Ramsay reading to James, she said. She knew his objection, that no one could tell it for a human shape. But she had made no attempt at likeness, she said. For what reason had she introduced them, then? he asked. Why, indeed, except that, if there, in that corner, it was bright, 
Here, in this, she felt the need of darkness. Simple, obvious, commonplace as it was, Mr. Banks was interested. Mother and child, then, objects of universal veneration, and in this case the mother was famous for her beauty, might be reduced, he pondered, to a purple shadow without irreverence. But the picture was not of them, she said, or not in his sense. There were other senses, too, in which one might reverence them. By a shadow here and a light there, for instance. Her tribute took that form, if, as she vaguely supposed, a picture must be a tribute. A mother and child might be reduced to a shadow without irreverence. A light here required a shadow there. He considered. He was interested. He took it scientifically in complete good faith. The truth was that all his prejudices were on the other side, he explained. The largest picture in his dining-room, which painters had praised and valued at a higher price than he had given for it, was of the cherry-trees in blossom on the banks of the Kennet. He had spent his honeymoon on the banks of the Kennet, he said. Lily must come and see that picture, he said. But now, he turned, with his glasses raised, to the scientific examination of her canvas. The question being one of the relations of masses, of lights and shadows, which, to be honest, he had never considered before, he would like to have it explained. What, then, did she wish to make of it? And he indicated the scene before them. She looked. She could not show him what she wished to make of it, could not see it even herself, without a brush in her hand. She took up once more her old painting position, with the dim eyes and the absent-minded manner, subduing all her impressions as a woman to something much more general, becoming once more under the power of that vision which she had seen clearly once, and must now grope for among hedges and houses and mothers and children, her picture. It was a question, she remembered, how to connect this mass on the right hand with that on the left. She might do it by bringing the line of the branch across so, or break the vacancy in the foreground by an object, James perhaps, so. But the danger was that by doing that the unity of the whole might be broken. She stopped. She did not want to bore him. She took the canvas lightly off the easel. But it had been seen, it had been taken from her. This man had shared with her something profoundly intimate. And, thanking Mr. Ramsay for it, and Mrs. Ramsay for it, and the hour and the place, crediting the world with a power which she had not suspected, that one could walk away down that long gallery, not alone any more, but arm in arm with somebody, the strangest feeling in the world, and the most exhilarating. She nicked the catch of her paint-box, too, more firmly than was necessary, and the nick seemed to surround in a circle for ever the paint-box, the lawn, Mr. Banks, and that wild villain, Cam, dashing past. CHAPTER Ten. For Cam grazed the easel by an inch. She would not stop for Mr. Banks and Lily Briscoe, though Mr. Banks, who would have liked a daughter of his own, held out his hand. She would not stop for her father, whom she grazed also by an inch, nor for her mother, who called, "'Cam, I want you a moment,' as she dashed past. 
she was off like a bird, bullet or arrow, impelled by what desire, shot by whom, at what directed, who could say? What, what? Mrs. Ramsay pondered, watching her. It might be a vision, of a shell, of a wheelbarrow, of a fairy kingdom on the far side of the hedge, or it might be the glory of speed, no one knew. But when Mrs. Ramsay called, Cam! a second time, the projectile dropped in mid-career, and Cam came lagging back, pulling a leaf by the way, to her mother. What was she dreaming about, Mrs. Ramsay wondered, seeing her engrossed, as she stood there with some thought of her own, so that she had to repeat the message twice, ask Mildred if Andrew, Miss Doyle, and Mr. Rayleigh have come back. The words seemed to be dropped into a well, where, if the waters were clear, they were also so extraordinarily distorting that, even as they descended, one saw them twisting about to make heaven knows what pattern on the floor of the child's mind. What message would Cam give the cook, Mrs. Ramsay wondered? And indeed it was only by waiting patiently, and hearing that there was an old woman in the kitchen with very red cheeks drinking soup out of a basin, that Mrs. Ramsay at last prompted that parrot-like instinct which had picked up Mildred's words quite accurately, and could now produce them, if one waited, in a colourless sing-song. Shifting from foot to foot, Cam repeated the words. "'No, they haven't, and I've told Ellen to clear away tea.' Minta Doyle and Paul Rayleigh had not come back, then. That could only mean, Mrs. Ramsay thought, one thing. She must accept him, or she must refuse him. This going off after luncheon for a walk, even though Andrew was with them, what could it mean? Except that she had decided, rightly, Mrs. Ramsay thought, and she was very, very fond of Minta, to accept that good fellow, who might not be brilliant. But then, thought Mrs. Ramsay, realising that James was tugging at her, to make her go on reading aloud the fisherman and his wife. She did in her own heart infinitely prefer boobies to clever men who wrote dissertations—Charles Tansley, for instance. Anyhow, it must have happened, one way or the other, by now. But she read. Next morning the wife awoke first, and it was just daybreak, and from her bed she saw the beautiful country lying before her. Her husband was still stretching himself. But how could Minta say now that she would not have him? Not if she agreed to spend whole afternoons traipsing about the country alone, for Andrew would be off after his crabs. But possibly Nancy was with them. She tried to recall the sight of them standing at the hall door after lunch. There they stood, looking at the sky, wondering about the weather. And she had said, thinking partly to cover their shyness, partly to encourage them to be off, for her sympathies were with Paul. There isn't a cloud anywhere within miles." At which she could feel little Charles Tansley, who had followed them out, snigger. But she did it on purpose. Whether Nancy was there or not she could not be certain, looking from one to the other in her mind's eye. She read on. "'Our wife,' said the man, "'why should we be king?' I do not want to be king." Well, said the wife, if you won't be king, I will. Go to the flounder, for I will be king. Come in or go out, Cam, she said, knowing that Cam was attracted only by the word flounder, and that in a moment she would fidget and fight with James as usual. Cam shot off. 
Mrs. Ramsay went on reading, relieved, for she and James shared the same tastes and were comfortable together. And when he came to the sea it was quite dark grey, and the water heaved up from below and smelt putrid. Then he went and stood by it and said, Flounder, flounder, in the sea, come I pray thee here to me, for my wife, good Ilzebil, wills not as I'd have her will. Well, what does she want, then? said the flounder. And where were they now? Mrs. Ramsay wondered, reading and thinking quite easily both at the same time. For the story of the fisherman and his wife was like the bass gently accompanying a tune, which now and then ran up unexpectedly into the melody. And when should she be told? If nothing happened she would have to speak seriously to Minta, for she could not go traipsing about all over the country, even if Nancy were with them. She tried again, unsuccessfully, to visualise their backs going down the path, and to count them. She was responsible to Minta's parents, the owl and the poker. Her nicknames for them shot into her mind as she read. The owl and the poker, yes, they would be annoyed if they heard, and they were certain to hear, that Minta, staying with the Ramses, had been seen, etc., etc., etc. He wore a wig in the House of Commons, and she ably assisted him at the head of the stairs," she repeated, fishing them up out of her mind by a phrase which, coming back from some party, she had made to amuse her husband. "'Dear, dear,' Mrs. Ramsay said to herself, "'how did they produce this incongruous daughter, this tomboy Minter with a hole in her stocking? How did she exist in that portentous atmosphere? where the maid was always removing in a dustpan the sand that the parrot had scattered, and conversation was almost entirely reduced to the exploits, interesting perhaps but limited after all, of that bird. Naturally one had asked her to lunch, tea, dinner, finally to stay with them up at Finlay, which had resulted in some friction with the owl, her mother, and more calling, and more conversation, and more sand, and really, at the end of it, she had told enough lies about parrots to last her a lifetime, so she had said to her husband that night, coming back from the party. However, Minta came. Yes, she came, Mrs. Ramsay thought, suspecting some thorn in the tangle of this thought, and disengaging it found it to be this. A woman had once accused her of robbing her of her daughter's affections. Something Mrs. Doyle had said made her remember that charge again. Wishing to dominate, wishing to interfere, making people do what she wished—that was the charge against her, and she thought it most unjust. How could she help being like that to look at? No one could accuse her of taking pains to impress. She was often ashamed of her own shabbiness. Nor was she domineering, nor was she tyrannical. It was more true about hospitals and drains and the dairy. About things like that she did feel passionately, and would, if she had the chance, have liked to take people by the scruff of their necks and make them see. No hospital on the whole island! It was a disgrace. Milk delivered at your door in London positively brown with dirt. It should be made illegal. A model dairy and a hospital up here—those two things she would have liked to do herself. But how? With all these children? When they were older, then perhaps she would have time, when they were all at school. 
Oh, but she never wanted James to grow a day older, or Cam either. These two she would have liked to keep forever just as they were, demons of wickedness, angels of delight, never to see them grow up into long-legged monsters. Nothing made up for the loss. When she read just now to James, and there were numbers of soldiers with kettle-drums and trumpets, and his eyes darkened, she thought, why should they grow up and lose all that? He was the most gifted, the most sensitive of her children. But all, she thought, were full of promise. Prue, a perfect angel with the others, and sometimes now, at night especially, she took one's breath away with her beauty. Andrew, even her husband admitted that his gift for mathematics was extraordinary. And Nancy and Roger, they were both wild creatures now, scampering about over the country all day long. As for Rose, her mouth was too big, but she had a wonderful gift with her hands. If they had charades, Rose made the dresses, made everything, liked best arranging tables, flowers, anything. She did not like it that Jasper should shoot birds, but it was only a stage. They all went through stages. Why? she asked pressing her chin on James's head, should they grow up so fast? Why should they go to school? She would have liked always to have had a baby. She was happiest carrying one in her arms. Then people might say she was tyrannical, domineering, masterful, if they chose. She did not mind. And, touching his hair with her lips, she thought, he will never be so happy again, but stopped herself remembering how it angered her husband that she should say that. Still, it was true. They were happier now than they would ever be again. A tenpenny tea-set made Cam happy for days. She heard them stamping and crowing on the floor above her head the moment they awoke. They came bustling along the passage. Then the door sprang open, and in they came, fresh as roses, staring, wide awake, as if this coming into the dining-room after breakfast which they did every day of their lives, was a positive event to them, and so on, with one thing after another, all day long, until she went up to say good-night to them, and found them netted in their cots like birds among cherries and raspberries, still making up stories about some little bit of rubbish, something they had heard, something they had picked up in the garden. They all had their little treasures. And so she went down and said to her husband, why must they grow up and lose it all? Never will they be so happy again. And he was angry. Why take such a gloomy view of life, he said, it is not sensible. For it was odd, and she believed it to be true, that with all his gloom and desperation he was happier, more hopeful on the whole, than she was. Less exposed to human worries, perhaps that was it. He always had his work to fall back on. Not that she herself was pessimistic, as he accused her of being. Only she thought life, and a little strip of time presented itself to her eyes, her fifty years. There it was before her, life. Life, she thought. But she did not finish her thought. She took a look at life, for she had a clear sense of it there, something real, something private, which she shared neither with her children nor with her husband. A sort of transaction went on between them, in which she was on one side and life was on another, and she was always trying to get the better of it, 
as it was of her, and sometimes they parleyed, when she sat there alone. There were, she remembered, great reconciliation scenes, but for the most part, oddly enough, she must admit that she felt this thing she called life terrible, hostile, and quick to pounce on you if you gave it a chance. There were eternal problems—suffering, death, the poor. There was always a woman dying of cancer, even here. And yet she had said to all these children, you shall go through it all. To eight people she had said relentlessly that, and the bill for the greenhouse would be fifty pounds. For that reason, knowing what was before them, love and ambition and being wretched alone in dreary places, she had often the feeling, why must they grow up and lose it all? And then she said to herself, brandishing her sword at life, nonsense! They will be perfectly happy. And here she was, she reflected, feeling life rather sinister again, making Minta marry Paul Rayleigh because, whatever she might feel about her own transaction, she had had experiences which need not happen to every one. She did not name them to herself. She was driven on—too quickly she knew—almost as if it were an escape for her, too, to say that people must marry, people must have children. Was she wrong in this? she asked herself, reviewing her conduct for the past week or two, and wondering if she had indeed put any pressure upon Minta who was only twenty-four, to make up her mind. She was uneasy. Had she not laughed about it? Was she not forgetting again how strongly she influenced people? Marriage needed oh, all sorts of qualities. The bill for the greenhouse would be fifty pounds. One, she need not name it, that was essential, the thing she had with her husband. Had they that? Then he put on his trousers and ran away like a madman, she read. But outside a great storm was raging, and blowing so hard that he could scarcely keep his feet. Houses and trees toppled over, the mountains trembled, rocks rolled into the sea, the sky was pitch black, and it thundered and lightened, and the sea came in with black waves as high as church towers and mountains, and all with white foam at the top. She turned the page, there were only a few lines more, so that she would finish the story, though it was past bedtime. It was getting late. The light in the garden told her that, and the whitening of the flowers and something grey in the leaves conspired together to rouse in her a feeling of anxiety. What it was about she could not think at first. Then she remembered. Paul and Minta and Andrew had not come back. She summoned before her again the little group on the terrace in front of the hall-door, standing looking up into the sky. Andrew had his net and basket. That meant he was going to catch crabs and things. That meant he would climb out onto a rock, he would be cut off. Or coming back, single file, on one of those little paths above the cliff, one of them might slip. He would roll and then crash. It was growing quite dark but she did not let her voice change in the least as she finished the story, and added, shutting the book, and speaking the last words as if she had made them up herself, looking into James's eyes, "'And there they are, living still, at this very time.' "'And that's the end,' she said, and she saw in his eyes, as the interest of the story died away in them, something else take its place, something wondering, 
pale, like the reflection of a light, which had once made him gaze and marvel. Turning, she looked across the bay, and there, sure enough, coming regularly across the waves, first two quick strokes, and then one long, steady stroke, was the light of the lighthouse. It had been lit. In a moment he would ask her, "'Are we going to the lighthouse?' And she would have to say, "'No, not to-morrow. Your father says not.' Happily Mildred came in to fetch them, and the bustle distracted them. But he kept looking back over his shoulder as Mildred carried him out, and she was certain that he was thinking, "'We are not going to the lighthouse to-morrow,' and she thought, "'He will remember that all his life.'" End of section 4 Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.